are listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. This episode, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about some opening weekend thoughts, random thoughts. Uh, I know the uh, Georgia season kicked off September 10th. Uh, Yeah, September 10th. And I know there's been some early hunts across uh, parts of the country, but for the most part, uh, the archery seasons are are starting to kick off. And I know that was the case in Georgia. I know that was the case in North Carolina. I'm not sure about other states, but I do know there were uh, quite a few uh, opening weekends this past weekend because I saw a lot of uh, posts on Facebook, first time trad kills, uh, some really nice buck kills. I'm not going to mention any names. Uh, I thought about doing that, but you know, I don't really have permission from people to start name dropping, so I'd rather not do that. But if you were successful this weekend, congratulations. A huge congrats to my good buddy, Robert Carter. I call him RC, as a lot of people do. But I think he was the first person I saw post a um, opening day kill this year. It was a nice fat doe down in South Georgia. Uh, so big congrats to you, RC. It was great seeing that, buddy. And then I think you dropped the video on Sunday. So for like 24-hour turnaround. Uh, when it comes to the videos, I'm just a big slacker, I guess. I just I can't seem to get stuff turned around that quick. But I probably tend to overthink it and try to do too much fancy stuff to it rather than just uploading the video file. But anyway, as I was sitting in the stand um, this weekend, I was trying to think about, you know, what I could record for topics. And I had a lot of different thoughts running through my my mind. So I thought, you know, this would be a, a good opportunity to just kind of walk through some of those. Um, so as far as my my particular opening weekend activities, Friday night, I had uh, arranged to meet uh, my daughter Bella and, and her, uh, boyfriend for dinner down in, uh, Athens, which is about an hour and 15 minutes from me. So, uh, as soon as work was done, um, me and Amy hopped in the car and drove to Athens, had a real great dinner with, uh, Bella and her, her beau, um, called up a little bit. Hadn't really seen her since I moved her into her, her apartment right before, um, her, her college year kicked off, her senior year kicked off. So it's real good to catch up with them. Uh, but as a result of that was kind of like getting back to the house that night. And, uh, I think, you know, I can't, I very rarely can just walk in the house, go to bed. So anyway, by the time I ended up actually turning the light off, it was after 1am, they were calling for rain the next morning. So I just, you know, I didn't even bother setting a clock. I just figured, you know, I'll hunt the afternoon um, weather permitting. And as it turned out, I was perfectly happy with the way, uh, that went, but Saturday morning, uh, I had an area that I was planning to hunt. I spent a good bit of time scouting through the woods, looking for some active feed trees. I didn't run into anything in the way of, uh, acorns, white oaks dropping. Uh, I do know that some of the white oaks on the property have acorns. They just because the squirrels were, were cutting, you know, pretty regularly in, in certain trees, but didn't find anything on the ground to speak of. Uh, did run across some per- persimmons, but again, kind of the same thing, just not, not a lot of, uh, not a lot of feeding activity. And most of the persimmon trees on this particular track of land is, is fairly small. So they don't have a, a huge dropping of, of fruit anyway. Um, 
but there, there was a lot of muscadines. Um, I mean, muscadines everywhere. Um, can't really, it's hard to really tell about feed sign with muscadines. I mean, you might see some, uh, leaves disturbed, that kind of thing, but they're, they're generally widely scattered. So, uh, I did, um, after looking at that, I just decided on a, on a spot that I had hunted successfully in the past. It's a transition between some, some thicker pines and some open hardwoods and, um, a lot of muscadines in that area. And I tried to find a, uh, a tree that would give me good cover. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more as well, but give me good cover. Um, give me some, some shot opportunities along that transition and where I knew there were, you know, fresh muscadines on the ground. And Saturday afternoon I did see, ended up seeing three deer. Um, the closest two were probably about 40 yards. Um, the, the other one was probably 60 yards out or so. I just really got a glimpse of, of that animal. Um, and they were feeding on muscadines. They just didn't, they didn't present a shot. They didn't come anywhere close to where I was set up. So it was a good day. First day saw, you know, saw a couple animals and, you know, 40 yards would have been, you know, that'd been okay if you were hunting with more modern equipment, but with trad bow, that was just way further than I'm willing to shoot. And I was perfectly content just to watch them. Sorry, I had to get a sip of coffee there. Um, and then Sunday, uh, went back to the same area. I figured, you know, the, the animals that I saw coming through never knew I was there. I uh, thought maybe, you know, they might work their way back through to get some, uh, muscadines off the ground or, uh, perhaps some other deer might move through. And I did have one doe move through, but she was running full tilt because the, there's, we, and we've had this problem on this property in the past, but there's quite a few houses surrounding the area. And, uh, there's a couple of German shepherds that just treat, you know, this whole property like it's their little playground. And they were, uh, they came through three different times, one time running a doe that was just, she was going full tilt, her tongue was hanging out, um, kind of suspect she might've been trying to, you know, get them away from her, her, her fawn or fawns from this year. But, uh, anyway, uh, I've watched that for, well, after the third time they came through, I think it was around eight thirty, quarter to nine. I just went ahead and climbed down and called it, called it a day. I already had plans for Sunday afternoon, so I couldn't make it back out the afternoon, but, and then this week, the temperatures are back up into the mid eighties. So I don't know if I'll, if I'll go out any this week or not, I may try to pick a, a morning. I don't have too much to do work-wise and slip out and, and hunt for a little bit before work, but time will tell. So as I was sitting in, uh, the stand, um, thinking and thinking about topics and so forth. I, you know, I was kind of thinking about different things that were running through my mind. And instead of devoting an episode to each one of these, I just thought, you know, maybe it would be a, a good time just to, you know, briefly chat through a few of these, um, different topics. And, and one of the first ones that I was thinking about was how I approach, you know, stand locations throughout the season. And, you know, this is a topic that, if you listen to, you know, any of the number of podcasts that are out there, watch, you know, YouTube videos, that kind of thing. There's, there's a lot of different techniques or, you know, approaches that people use, uh, when deciding where to hunt. I thought I'd kind of talk through those. I don't personally, I don't think there's any one, um, 
that's the one end all be all. And, and I, I'll talk about that a little bit. I know, you know, um, two that come to mind, my, my friend, my good friend, RC, who I mentioned earlier, Chris Bikes, and there's several others. I know they primarily focus on feed trees and I do hunt feed trees quite often, but it's, there are times for whatever reason, there are times for me, um, it just, it just doesn't work. Uh, I rarely get a full day to hunt. Um, usually it's an afternoon or a morning and sometimes it's, you know, a few hours in the afternoon. I don't, I don't necessarily have time to, to walk and walk and walk and find an active feed tree. Um, if I did, maybe that would probably be uh, my preferred method. Uh, and I don't even know if I have a preferred method, to be honest, but uh, when I can, I hunt feed trees. Um, I have in the past had minimal luck hunting early season over feed trees here in North Georgia. Um, in fact, I honestly can't remember the last whitetail that I shot over an active white oak. Uh, I don't know if that's because I'm just not finding the right trees or what I suspect is there's just so much food right now that while I know white oaks are preferred, I just don't see a ton of activity. I know this property I was hunting this weekend, there's a very large uh, area of kudzu and I know, uh, I know the whitetails eat that and I know it's high in protein. So I don't know if that has an effect on it. I, I really don't know, but once the the red oaks start getting activity, I usually take one or two whitetails every year under red oaks. It's just for some reason where I where I hunt, they always produce where white oaks really don't. Uh, later in the year, water oaks don't find a ton of those uh, where I typically hunt here in North Georgia, but they are there. And and from what I've seen, they typically produce later, and sometimes can produce. Um, well into January and possibly even February, maybe. Um, and then persimmons on occasion, again, I don't, I don't typically find the large persimmon trees like I see RC and Chris talking about, you know, down in the, in the, um, swamps of, of central and South Georgia. It's just, we have them, but I just don't typically find them big enough that produce the kind of fruit that I see those guys showing. Uh, and then late season, you know, privet, greenbrier, honeysuckle, those are definitely things that, that I can key, on, key in on. So hunting food sources is a part of my, uh, my hunting plan, my stand location, but it's just one, um, terrain funnels and, you know, terrain, I guess I should say, and then funnels and pinch points, whether that be by terrain or by, you know, natural obstacles, fallen trees, that kind of thing. Um, that's probably my primary, if I had to pick a primary. And the reason I say that is because it's an area I can hunt without necessarily having to scout for an active feed tree. Or, um, there are definitely times that those travel, uh, the travel corridors change and you have to be aware of that, but there are definitely some terrain features and, uh, funnels and pinch points that work pretty much year round, at least where I hunt. So I would have to say that that's probably my primary and it's, it's my fallback when I don't have any other definitive plan. So if I'm not, if I'm not, you know, hunting a feed tree that I already have found that I know to be producing. Um, and in all fairness, uh, I should say too, 
if I had a little bit more time or maybe when I do have more time, I could spend a half a day or a day doing nothing but scouting in season, of course, with my bow uh, and find a location that I can hunt the next couple of days. I probably should do more of that, but I, I, I typically don't. I'm, when I have an opportunity to hunt, I want to hunt. Um, and I, uh, it's probably a shortcoming of mine, maybe something I need to work on, but it is what it is. Um, next, uh, next source or location that I would, that I've used in the past is around bedding. Um, and I've had mixed results. I have taken some whitetails, usually bucks in close proximity to bedding. Uh, so I knew the bedding was there, but I didn't necessarily get to the, the level of, I mean, you know, Dan Infault, I'll throw him out there. He's, he's a master at it. And that's just not me. I'm not, I don't find a buck bed or doe bedding and think about, you know, travel to from the bed and locating the exit. No, I just, that's just not what I do. What I have done when I know where bedding is, is I will try to pick a time when I feel like I can sneak in um, and be very quiet and get really close to that bedding. Um, days of, of high wind, high favorable wind is a, a good example. Uh, and I will get in as close as I feel comfortable and try to hunt along an edge or a transition line that's close to that bedding. And usually, you know, getting close to the rut or maybe it's during or even after, you know, just right after the rut. Um, and my thought is, you know, especially if it's around doe bedding, uh, catching a buck, you know, skirting the edge of that bedding downwind, definitely been effective. Um, and even, you know, when I, when I know there are buck beds in an area, I may try to get in and set up, but it's not, I'm not sitting there trying to set up on his exit trail. I just... I haven't gotten to that point yet. Maybe someday I will, but um, if I had to say where I've used bedding most effectively, it would be locating doe bedding and setting up on the downwind side of that um, pre-rut, rut, and post-rut uh, and trying to catch bucks skirting that. And it's, that's been successful, but that's a, for me, with a season that runs from early September to the end of January, um, that's just a, a small percentage of the time that I actually spend in the woods. Uh, so it's not, uh, it's not something that I do all the time from that. I'll go into rut locations, which I do treat a little bit differently. There are certain areas that I typically only hunt during that pre, um, pre rut, rut and post rut. And some of that I just talked about. And the other thing is just, um, thick cover and, um, transition lines, uh, and again, those natural, uh, funnels that kind of combine the two of, of thick cover and, and transition areas. That's the kind of areas I set up, you know, just before, during, and after the rut. Um, I would love to sit down and talk to Jerry Russell a little bit. I feel like Jerry is one of the, um, best rut hunters that, that I know. In fact, that's primarily, I don't want to speak for him, but from what he's told me, that's, you know, his primary time to, to hunt whitetails the rest of the time he's, he's hunting black bear. So, uh, but that's, that's what's worked for me in the past. It was, and it's worked pretty, pretty well. Um, something that, uh, I've had a couple of people ask that I'll throw out here is, is what about, you know, hunting, hunting trails? Uh, for me, I definitely do this some, it's another one of those fallbacks, but I'm not just thinking about the trail itself. Uh, except in one or two 
very unique scenarios. And really, even in those scenarios, terrain plays a factor. But usually trails, for me, if I'm hunting a trail that has something to do with uh, topography, uh, terrain, uh, maybe it's a bench, maybe it's, again, a pinch point or funnel, um, saddle, you know, a, a terrain saddle, that kind of thing. And I will hunt near trails for that. Um, you know, am I hunting over a primary or a secondary trail? If I can, I like to do both. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, which I'm sure most of you do, primary trail gets used by pretty much all the animals. But a lot of times, especially where you have a thick or a heavily, heavily used primary trail, you can find a secondary trail off to one side that typically will be um, used by bucks more than, than the does. And in some cases it's, it's only used by one or, uh, more bucks. So if I can, I try to set up where I've got a shot opportunity for both. Um, if I don't have that opportunity to hunt both, then I typically will hunt the primary trail and not the secondary. I'm not, everybody likes to kill a big buck, but that's not what my primary, uh, drive is with, with hunting. I mean, I'm, I'm a trad guy. I want to be within 20 yards. And if it's an animal that presents itself within 20 yards, that's legal, uh, I'm going to take it. Um, the only thing I will stop short of is if it's got spots on it, yeah, I'm going to pass on it. Um, now if it's a yearling late season, absolutely. I'll take it. Some of the best eating out there. Um, that's just me. Uh, you do you, but that's, uh, I'm a, I'm a hunter of opportunity. And if, if I need or want meat in the freezer, then, you know, if it's legal, it's, it's, it, I'm going to, I'm going to take the shot opportunity. So that's kind of the, the, the types of, of thought I put into where I'm, where I'm scouting, where I'm looking for a stand location, where I'm hanging a stand. I do have uh stand sites that I use every year. Uh, I don't overhunt them. I might hunt each one three or four or five times, maybe during the course of the season. When I say that four or five, it's usually getting late in the season. And, you know, it's just, uh, I know it's worked for me in the past and, uh, I'm not so worried about, you know, um, blowing everything out because, you know, it'll be the last hunt or two that I'm going to take advantage of. And to a lot of times, if I'm doing a, a fourth and fifth hunt in a stand, sometimes what I'll do is hunt the evening, which will be my fourth sit in the location. And I'll just leave the stand and hunt it. Um, I'll leave my sticks on the tree and hunt it the next day, that kind of thing. Um, but a lot of my, a lot of my stand locations are, are mobile. Uh, I think I usually end up setting four or five stands that, that pretty much remain up, or maybe I'll hang a stand and I know I'm going to hunt at least once more. So I will just leave it. I do have some spare stands and I will if I'm going to do that, uh, I'll use one of those stands and just leave it up. I'll take my sticks down with me, uh, and knock on wood. I've, I've not had one stolen yet. Uh, and I typically do that on public, uh, excuse me, on private anyway, on public, I'm almost 100%, uh, mobile. My stand goes in with me and it comes out with me. Um, for that, just in case anybody is wondering, I use a, uh, millennium M7. It's a, I think I call it a micro light or something like that. It's a very small platform. Um, but it is comfortable. I have very, I have pretty large feet. I wear, I have size 12 shoes. Um, and you know, when I'm sitting there most of the time, about anywhere from a third to a half of my foot is actually off the stand platform most of the time, but there it's fairly comfortable. It's one of the lightest stands out there. 
it uses a receiver um, for hanging on the tree. And I've actually got a receiver that I modified with uh, some, some rock climbing gear and a carabiner. So, and a lone wolf strap. So it's very quick to hang. Uh, I can actually, from the time I, I step up onto my top stick, I can have the stand uh, hung on the tree and be standing in the platform and probably never timed it, but I would say a minute or less. It's, it's really quick. Um, once I'm ready to hang the stand. Um, so from that, and again, if I'd love to hear from you, if you've got thoughts, something else that I didn't consider, or if you have a question, shoot an email. Um, I left the email in the last episode, but just email my primary email, bowhunterga, all one word at gmail.com. And I will try my best to get back to you on any emails that are sent or include the information in a future podcast. Um, from that, I thought about, well, you know, what about picking the right tree? Get another sip of coffee here. Um, and when thinking about the right tree, it typically comes into, for me, it's two lines of thought. Well, really it's three lines of thought, uh, wind direction first and foremost. Um, because I can, I can fool a deer's eyes. I cannot fool his nose. So, you know, if uh, wind direction, and sometimes I base that on historical data. So I'm looking at the prevailing winds in a particular area. Um, day of, I'm, I'm typically looking at the, the weather forecast. And in some cases, it's weather forecast. And then once I get to the general area I'm going to hunt, I, I look at what is the actual wind direction I'm seeing. Yes, I also take into account thermals, uh, morning or afternoon hunt, but wind direction is my first priority. Then I will think about, you know, what's the thermals going to do later in the in the morning or later in the afternoon, depending on where I, when I'm hunting. Sometimes I will hang a stand in the morning and, you know, once the sun is up and I feel like I've got a good opportunity to do so, I may move um, to take advantage of the thermals in the afternoon. So yeah, you, that, that first and foremost is, you know, doing everything I can to defeat the nose. After that, I start thinking about proximity versus cover. I definitely want a tree that provides as much cover as possible, but I also have to be within the, you know, my, my self imposed limit of 20 yards. So, you know, that's a key factor. And, you know, I don't know about everybody else, but I'll be honest, finding, finding a spot to hunt is half, maybe even a third of the battle, finding a place where you can actually place a stand or a blind and, and be in the, you know, within 20 yards, the proximity that you need to be that in most cases, that's the, that's the bigger battle. Uh, so I think for me, cover is probably the first and foremost after, after, you know, wind direction. Um, but not, not necessarily all the time, because there are times when I don't find the ideal tree that there are things that I can do to enhance the cover at my stand site. So if I've got to trim any limbs, I will use those to add additional cover behind me uh, on the tree. I keep some extra paracord. You can, I keep, um, I have used clothespins or little plastic clips before, uh, whatever I'd need to do to, or, and sometimes just wedging it in place, um, whatever I can do to, to use some of that cover that I, that I have to cut to place back behind me. Um, I've even, you know, pulled up some small sapling tops that I've cut when I pull my, my bow up and use those behind me. So you can add cover, adds a little bit more work whenever possible. If I have to trim limbs, uh, once I'm, you know, once I'm ascending the tree, I try to do everything I can not to throw those down to the ground. 
can't tell you how many times I've had whitetails that detect a limb that you've cut and dropped to the ground and they know something's up. So if I can keep it up in the tree with me or keep it, you know, above the canopy, I'd, I prefer to do so. So you can enhance that, you know, that cover. The other thing is, especially in some, in some locations, I know that's the case here in Georgia, is in the early season, you have the benefit of a, a low canopy. So you can get away with less cover on the tree. So maybe you don't have as many limbs around you um, where, when, you, when you stop climbing and you hang your stand. But uh, typically, there's a lot of cover beneath you, and hopefully you don't have to shoot through it. But that, that works as well. So early season, it's probably less of a challenge for me than it is, you know, once the leaves begin to fall. But it, it's still, you know, probably my, my, probably my, my second um, consideration when I'm, when I'm picking a, a tree to hunt out of. As far as blinds, most of the time, if I'm hunting a natural blind, it's something that I've already identified and, and freshened up or built during uh, the off season. So over the course of the summer, sometimes from the spring, the one exception being I do hunt using river cane as a blind, which I've done videos on any, a lot of this stuff you can actually find on the YouTube channel uh, where I've talked about it in the past in a couple of videos and I will be doing more, but um, river cane is one of those wonderful things. If you can find a spot where you can use it as a natural blind, you can, you can create the blind day you hunt, um, because the deer are already used to it. And really all you're doing is creating a little pocket for you to sit in and, and maybe a couple of shooting lanes. So, uh, that's the one exception. Uh, and I do have several places where I do that every year and, and it's, you know, the day of when I go in and freshen things up and get it the way I want it. And the last thing regarding that is regardless of where you pick, what, what kind of stand location you choose, what kind of cover you have available, minimizing your movement is key. Um, and you know, people don't, I don't think people think about that enough. I watch videos all the time and I'm thinking, I, I don't know how people get away with a lot of the movement that they display, uh, in, you know, hunting videos on YouTube. And I think, you know, I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but I think a lot of times the, some of what you're seeing, uh, before the shot was actually recorded later, or maybe it's not even the same day of, I don't, I don't know, but I just can't believe some of the movement I see people get away with and think, yeah, you, you try that here, uh, where, you know, especially where the deer pressure, uh, pressured for three and four months out of a year, you can't get away with that movement. Um, turning your head really slow when you hear a, a, a sound. It's hard to get in the habit of doing, but you have to do it. Slow hand movements. Keep your phone in your pocket. Uh, you know, I've heard of people reading on the stand. I, you know, if, if it works for you, great. I, I can't do it because it just adds additional movement. Um, I think the one thing that I've done uh, to keep myself occupied is sometimes I have carried a single... It's not an Apple ear, uh, I, uh, what do they call them? Earbuds, but it's a, it's a, uh, in-ear Bluetooth headphone. I've got a pair of them I use for when I'm exercising and sometimes I will carry one. And if there's something, if I want to listen to a podcast, I keep it turned down really low and it's only in one ear and I'm not moving a lot. But anyway, I don't, I don't really don't do that very often just on a rare occasion, but you know, this, the movement that I see again, and I'm not, I'm not in the woods hunting with a lot of people, but I do watch stuff on YouTube and I'm not talking about just trad people. I'm talking about bow hunters in general. I don't see how they get away with some of the movement they do, but more power to them if it's, if it's working for them. But I would just say if, you know, if, 
Keep it in mind. That's all I'm saying. Keep it in mind. Try to minimize the amount of movement you have once you're up in your stand um, and prepared to hunt. The last thing I'll say about stand location is, you know, as you're hanging your stand and getting settled in before you actually um, are ready to start your hunt on any given day, think about shot placement, how the stand is is oriented on the tree, you know, in anticipation of where you expect your shot opportunities to be. We all know deer will come in on the wrong side or, you know, in an unexpected direction. But for the most part, think about your shot placement. Where are you going to be able to shoot and what kind of what kind of shot angles is it going to give you? Think about your bow clearance, both at your stand and above your, you know, the top of the bow. And even so much as what your weak side is. So for me, um, if I'm shooting to my right, so straight in front of me to my right offers me more clearance around the tree in the stand than if I'm having to shoot to my left. Uh, and it's, that's especially true with longbows. Shorter recurves, probably not so much, but with longbows, I have to think about that. And, and you need to think about it as you're hanging in the stand, um, and bring all this together. So that's a lot of things I threw out there, but it, it's, it's definitely things that you have to think about, um, when you're hanging your stand. Trying to think there was a, one or two other things I wanted to mention. Uh, if your season had, hasn't opened or maybe if it's, if it has opened and you're, you know, you're still trying to get in some, some late, uh, practice sessions just to, to get you ready for season, or maybe it's keeping yourself tuned up during the season. I highly encourage trying to get a, a, a setup where you can practice elevated shots. So whether that's a, you know, a tree stand in your backyard or, you know, behind your house in some woods, if you can do it in the woods, that's even better uh, because it's more realistic. I mean, most of us don't hunt over manicured grass. Uh, so, you know, getting out in the woods, there's there's different things that will play tricks on you. Logs on the ground, shadows being cast by the trees, uh, vegetation in the woods. All of those things can play with your mind when you're thinking about distance and Shooting from an elevated position, uh, remembering to bend at the waist is very important um, in your in your shot execution. But then also once you're once you have a place like that, start thinking about um, looking at various things on the ground. Maybe it's a leaf, maybe it's a, a stump or a log or stick. Estimating that distance taking the shot, see how you do on the shot. But then also once you climb down to retrieve your arrows, pace that off, see how close you were in estimating that distance. Uh, I feel like I am an instinctive, uh, archer, but at the same time, I know that in my mind, there's calculations going on, whether I think about them or not to place that arrow where I want and going through that practice process as part of your, your, uh, practice sessions will make a difference. Um, the other thing I always keep, and I think Jason Sam Koviak's mentioned this and does this as well, but I always keep a fill point or a judo point in my, in my quiver as well. Um, and many times in the morning, you know, if I'm, if I'm hunting in the mornings and I'm going to climb down, the last thing I do before I, before I lower my bow is I'm going to pull that fill point out and I'm going to take a practice shot at something, a leaf, a stick, a stump. And then after I get down, I'm going to walk and pace off that distance. Well, how close was I? How close was I on the, the shot placement? Um, in the afternoons, if I'm hunting, a lot of times I will do that the first 
thing when I get up the tree. You know, I've just made some noise, unless I'm trying to be super stealthy, uh, hunting around bedding areas, that kind of thing. Um, I will take a shot as soon as I get set up in the tree. It just gives me a sense of, of confidence, if nothing else. Um, so I highly recommend that. Uh, the other thing uh, I didn't mention, uh, practice sessions this time of year, at least one of the areas that you're practicing with should have your broadhead on it. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, if, you're, if your arrows are tuned well, you should see minimal di- difference. But, you know, it may be a good way to identify, hey, I might have a problem here. If for some reason your broadhead's consistently flying, you know, six inches off the mark at 20 yards, that's something that you definitely need to remedy before you head out into the woods. Um, the other thing is it definitely changes your, your sight window. So when you've got a broadhead, especially if you shoot, you know, a large broadhead, I shoot a Simmons tree shark and in something that large, while it doesn't necessarily change my, my instinctive approach to hunting, that, that broadhead is sitting out there in your, uh, peripheral vision or in your sight window and it will make a difference. So get used to that, practice that before you. Uh, head out into the woods. Again, these are just my thoughts and opinions and the things that I do, but um, I I do strongly recommend that you try to practice um, with at least one broadhead as part of your normal practice sessions. Um, It just gives you another, again, a sense of of confidence. So anyway, that's pretty much all I think I wanted to talk about in this episode. Uh, The one thing I was going to mention, my buddy Tom sent me a text uh, last week um, if you're a user of Onyx Maps, and and I'm a little bit irritated with Onyx about this, I'll just I'll just say it. Um, Onyx started with um, SD cards for Garmin users with the um, public-private land boundaries and that kind of thing, and and I was one of the first supporters of the product. I I, I have multiple states sitting here in front of me. And last week they announced that they are uh, discontinuing the um, SD cards. Um, I think Western states are are out for purchase till the end of this month. And anything in the East, they terminated it instantly. So you can't even buy uh, any of the states in the in the from central the U.S. to the East. Uh, and then when I went to look at a couple of states that I thought I might want to buy, it was $120 and you had to buy for every card you buy, you're paying $120 for the card and an annual subscription to their, their phone, um, service. So wasn't very pleased with that. I'm going to be honest as a long supporter of theirs. I think they left a lot of people, uh, behind, um, by, by making that decision. Yes, I do use Onyx on my phone, but it's not my first option. I much prefer my Garmin. It's more accurate. Um, especially if I'm going into a tree in, you know, early morning, pitch black, dark, in some cases I may pick out, uh, the area or, or a, even a specific tree using, uh, Google earth. I have done that on multiple occasions and the phone just doesn't get me close enough, especially if I've got, um, week or no service and uh, a lot of, a lot of canopy. It's just, anyway, I I was very disappointed in that. I did go out and do a little research though. And two things to keep in mind, if you're only using the, the cell phone maps, um, go hunt now has the service available. I'm, I'm using it a little bit. The one problem I've seen with go hunt is you have to download the maps on your phone 
And I don't know if it's a bug or what it is, but when you download a map on your phone, you have to keep the, the phone active at all times until the download completes, which is a fairly lengthy process. If the phone screen times out, it cancels and you have to start all over, which is very frustrating, but that's an option. And the other option, if you're a Garmin user like I am, uh, right now Garmin has their hunt view maps on sale for $59 a state. Now those hunt view, uh, I don't, I'm almost positive. They don't include private public or, or plot, inf plot information, um, but that is something that you can add. And I've, I've got videos uh, on the YouTube channel that you can go back and look at that shows you how to use some other tools to um, create your own boundaries for public land that you can get very accurately. And in fact, uh, Onyx has been pretty slacking, in my opinion, about keeping public boundaries updated anyway. Uh, so, you know, managing and creating your own gives you the power of, of being more accurate and and doing it yourself. Um, so if that's something you're interested in, go, you know, check out those videos on the YouTube channel. Uh, and I don't know how long the, the sale will last, uh, on the Garmin's website, but the normal price for those hunt view SD cards are $89. And right now they're $59. And I bought several States last week to take advantage of the sale and thought I'd pass that along to you. And with that, that's pretty much everything for this week. Um, I actually am about eight minutes over now what I, uh, what I hoped for. So uh, forgive the, uh, the little bit of extra duration here, but I hope this information has proved useful. If you do find it useful, shoot me an email, let me know, and I'll try to keep stuff like this coming to you. And I will have another episode for you sometime next week, week and a half. It is hunting season, so be patient with me. But uh, I, like I said, I am going to try to keep these coming more uh, frequently than in the past and just keep them a little bit sh shorter. So until next time, good luck, everyone, as you head out into the woods this fall. Uh, do yourself a favor and try to enjoy your time in the woods and not just be focused on uh, the kill or the success. Uh, you miss a lot if you do that. So until next time, take care, everyone. See you.